This is Season 3 of Grain IQ. I'm your host, Chad Moyer. Grain marketing is a critical piece in keeping your operation profitable. In Seasons 1 and 2 of Grain IQ, we covered the basics of grain marketing and how to put those concepts into action. If you haven't listened to those first two seasons, we invite you to start there. Now, Season 3 will focus on timely factors and trends that could influence your grain marketing decisions. This episode was taped in front of a live audience at the 2023 York Ag Conference in York, Nebraska. Before we get to today's episode, we owe a big thank you to the York Chamber of Commerce and all who attended the conference to make this recording a seamless and interactive experience. Our guests for today's episode are Kyle Bumstead from Allendale and Alan Brugler from Brugler Marketing and Management, LLC. ...going into season three. Joining me on stage today is Alan Brugler from Brugler Marketing and Management. Alan, thanks for joining us here today. Great to be here. Now, if uh, maybe you can just give us a little bit of background. Uh, I, I know you've got a storied history in commodities and trading, but just give us a little background about you and your company. Well... I grew up on a dairy farm in Ohio. I've been out here in uh, Nebraska since 1992. I worked for DTN for about 10 years, started Brugler Marketing Management in 2002. You know, we have clients in 17 states, all farmers and, and agribusinesses, uh, specializing in, in cash grain marketing and hedging recommendations and, and special market research. And you've been in it long enough, you've seen quite a few different cycles that have happened in agriculture, right? Yeah, we've, we've, we've seen the bull markets from 95, 96, 2008, 2012, and another one here this last year. Also joining us on this episode of Grain IQ is Kyle Bumstead. He's with Allendale, and uh, he lives here in Erickson, Nebraska. Again, Kyle, thanks for joining us. You and I have, we, we have a little bit of history. You and I have had lunch in, uh, in a cornfield on several occasions, huh? Uh, well, we have at least once, that's for sure, up there in western Iowa, where I'm originally from. Uh, live up at Erickson Farm, feed cattle, have a trading office up there, and uh, my main office, or our main office is Allendale out in McHenry, Illinois, so out here, and uh, yeah. Tell me a little bit about what you do. What is kind of your focus when it comes to grain marketing with your clients? How do you go about doing that? Because there are so many different ways of doing that. Well, that's correct, and, and mainly uh, I work with a lot of feed yards and end users, commercial grain, so I'm typically more on to where are we looking to try to buy grain or what are we trying to do if we've got grain on hand, what are we doing for protection of the downside. Also on the row crop side of things, have uh, clients in about 20 different states and everybody's got a different basis. Everybody markets different whether they walk it off the farm or they're actually trucking it off the farm, so we look for those areas where we need to be protecting at least a bottom line. You talk about basis. That has been a story, especially here in the, in the Western Corn Belt. What is your assessment of basis now? Um, it, it had been so strong for so long. Is the market telling us to watch basis? What, what's, what's going on with basis right now in your mind? Well, I think the, the market's always telling us to watch basis, and uh, it's still staying fairly firm. We've actually firmed up here the last couple of days, uh, if we look at week over week. Now, through the holidays, obviously, it's going to get uh, sometimes a little bit weaker as those commercials have already procured what they need to get through the holiday time frame. But overall, basis is staying very strong west of Interstate 35. If you draw that dividing line out there through central Iowa, west of 35 in the livestock production and heavy ethanol production areas, it is staying very firm. 
All right, how about out east? Uh, is there enough rain in the uh, southern Mississippi that, uh, uh, you know, what isn't shut because of cold weather and ice? Are they starting to move more grain? Yes, uh, as a matter of fact, talking with some over there in Illinois, along the Illinois River, there is some grain starting to move that direction. Now their basis has weakened a little bit, but it is staying fairly firm for their area this time of year. Very good. Well, that kind of sets the stage. Now we know who we get to talk to for the next uh, little while on, on this uh, podcast. Uh, but it was data dump day at USDA on January 12th. Uh, we got three reports that day. The updated World Ag Supply and Demand Estimates. We got the final crop production numbers for 2022 on corn and soybeans. And then we also got the quarterly grain stocks report. So that's a lot of information for the, for the trade to digest in one session. And we have a holiday coming up on Monday. So really, the trade only has a day and a half to, to trade this information. Alan, let's start with you. Going into this report, what, what was the attitude of the trade in uh, how closely were they watching this? What, what do you think the trade's idea was going into January 12th? Well, we were definitely expecting some volatility because these, these quarterly stocks reports tend to, tend to have a lot more price movement to them, uh, particularly the ones later on that are at the end of the month as well. Uh, but again, what we were looking for was probably a little bit of an increase in yield numbers from, from USDA from, from the crop from last year and some cuts in the exports. The question was how far would USDA go and then how, how much were they willing to factor in South American production this early in the season? So, um, Kyle, what do you think? Uh, how did the trade line itself up? Uh, what, how do you think they were, what were they expecting out of today's reports? Well, when you look at... Uh the volatility, uh, the volatility in options has been very low. I don't know if you've seen that, Alan, or not. But uh, the volatility in options has been very low. But there has there had been a steady bid, uh, bid underneath the put side of the market. So there was a lot of protection being bought. Not a lot of the, on the call side. Not a lot of people were anticipating this market going up. So uh, there were a lot of puts bought before the report. A lot of futures shorted ahead of the report. And so that the, the industry was kind of taking that stance as yeah, it's going to be kind of bearish. We were expecting an export uh, cut, and we did get that. And they were also expecting some other cuts as far as ethanol and, and feed demand, and we got those along with it. But as a standout, they dropped the yield, and I think that's what boosted us. Yep. All right. Well, let's talk. Let's kind of tear these apart, uh, these reports apart, report by report, kind of piece by piece. What were we expecting, and then what did we what did we actually see? Let's start with that uh, because it's kind of all based on production, right? The supply and demand starts with supply. Right. So let's recap those numbers from the crop production the final 2022 numbers on corn and soybeans. Alan, what stood out in that report? On the corn, the, the, uh, they raised the yield a full bushel per acre, but they cut the harvested acres by 1.2 million. And uh, those are kind of hand in hand. The, the, the worst acres didn't get harvested. Therefore, the yield on what was harvested went up, right? Your average went up. Net, net, they took about 200 million bushels off the corn production. And uh, that would have been bullish in itself, but then we lost 150 million bushels off the export side. So, and we lost a little bit off of feed, feed and residual as well. So uh, they didn't really change the, the ending stocks that much. It was only a 15 million bushel uh, change. But it, the, uh, the, the surprise factor was nobody was looking for that 200 million bushel production cut. The trade was actually looking for a slight increase 
and therefore we got to rally. Well, that was kind of the discussion going into this report, right, guys, is uh, we know it was bad in the Western Corn Belt. Uh, there were some anecdotal reports that the Eastern Corn Belt might have been able to make up for that, right, Kyle? Yeah, that is correct. They did have moisture over there in the Eastern Corn Belt that we just obviously didn't get here in the Western Corn Belt. And then also uh, the export situation with the river being as low as it is, they were kind of forced to hold on to it instead of getting it down the river out into the world markets. Yep. Uh, so what about soybeans? Uh, I guess, Kyle, maybe we'll start with you. Uh, if you look at the soybean production number, did they change that much in the final report? They dropped it, uh, what, about half a bushel an acre, almost a bushel an acre, down around 49.2, 49.3. So that was a, a, a bigger drop than was anticipated. The uh, ending stocks, I believe, came in at 210 million bushel, which was a draw there as well, too. Not much, but it was a little bit of a draw. But recently here, uh, we have seen that the commercials have been in here buying soybeans, but I think that's kind of on the heels of Argentina weather and that bean market. Okay, Alan, what do you think about the soybean production number? Again, the, the yield cut was a little further, they went a little further down than we thought they would. Uh, I thing that struck me was there were only two states that had higher bean yields this year than last year, and that was North Dakota and Minnesota. There were another three or four that were unchanged, like Arkansas and Mississippi, but everybody else was down year over year. In the plain states, the Nebraska on south that had the worst drought conditions were down uh, anywhere from 10 to 40 percent on their on their bean yields. So pretty substantial, but it fit well with what we knew about the weather last year. Uh, okay, so that's kind of the production number. Let's, uh, and you hinted at it a couple of times, but let's put these numbers into the WASD report, uh, which not only takes a look at supply and demand here in the U.S., it does incorporate some world numbers as well. Alan, again, we'll start with you. What were the numbers that we were most interested in the WASD? Well, again, U.S. first, but then South America, what they do to Argentina, they cut, they cut corn 3 million tons, they cut uh, soybeans 4 million tons. So that was... Those were pretty substantial cuts. On the other hand, they cut the Chinese soybean import demand by two million tons and cut their crush a million. So uh, we're cutting production, but we're also backing off a little bit on what we think we're, we're gonna get out of the Chinese. All right, uh, what do you think, Kyle? Uh, WASD report, uh, what was most impactful in that report, do you think? I think most impactful is gonna be the yield, obviously, but then we also really need to keep our eye moving forward as far as our export picture. That's really big. Most of our demand, as pointed out in this report, has been domestic demand, whether it's bean meal crush or if it's been corn for feed use or ethanol use. We really need to keep an eye on this domestic demand as well too, which it's always gonna be there, but how much? And then the third report that came out was the uh, quarterly grain stocks. And like you said, Alan, this happens once a, or four times a year, right? Um, I guess, is there any indication, because um, I've heard reports that there's been a lot of commercial selling, especially at the end of last year. What, what's the takeaway from the stocks report and kind of the, the status of the selling that's happened so far? Well, basically, the grain stocks report uh, was ended up a little lower than expected for December 1 because of the production cut. But the key is uh, you were down for the five states that we call the Western Corn Belt, we were down 571 million bushels year over year. So that just tells you you're going to continue to see a strong basis in the Western Corn Belt. The, the bushels just aren't there compared to, to last year. Uh, it, the the uh, differential was a lot different east of the Mississippi because last year they had problems. This year they had a good crop. They had some record yields in a couple of those states. but. Uh, yeah, the bottom line is that, that east-west divide and, you know, what we've seen is the feedlots have to have grain 
you can't feed paper to cattle, right? You got to have the you got to have feed. So uh, they've been trying to get the corn, and the ethanol plants been trying to get the corn before the export market wants it. We had terrible corn export sales in the first quarter. That's going to improve quite a bit now that the Brazilians are starting to get out of their summer corn production. Okay. How about you? What did you think of the quarterly grain stocks report, Kyle? Is there anything that made an impact with you? Uh, not really. I, you could kind of see indications that there was going to be a drop in this quarterly grain stocks report. If we look at how the market has reacted since harvest, our basis has stayed firm. The spreads have stayed firm. You're still inverted. March corn is still worth more than July corn, so that tells me to you know, get rid of corn now and have some sort of a length out there far deferred because the market still wants it. They want it now. Now, we talk about the feed yards. You could go down uh, southwest Kansas, uh, northeast Texas, and the Panhandle. You're anywhere on any given day from 80 over to $1.80 over on basis, depending on how bad they need corn. California has recently had a pull here on corn as well, too, because of the rail situation. Uh, there's times out there there are two to three dollars over on basis out there just because they need to get the corn don't care how they get it they just need it because they've got plenty of chickens and dairy out there to feed too so as long as this basis stays strong and the spread stays strong i think we've got an underlying current of support underneath this corn market for sure We've talked a lot about what's going on now, you know, the, the basis and, and needing to feed these, uh, these, this livestock that we have right now. Uh, any of, is there anything in these reports that we got today that gives us any information on what we should be doing with new crop grain, grain that we're going to be putting in the ground here in a few months? Alan? Well, we tightened up the world ending stocks projection for corn, okay, not for beans. They went up a little bit. But uh, that tells you that the, we need a little more production going forward, whether that's, the, whether that's South America this spring or summer with their second crop, or if it's more production out of the U.S., okay? So you got a, little, a slight signal towards, uh, hey, don't, don't uh, switch too many corn acres to beans here. Uh, of course, many of us look at the February crop insurance averages as, as a, guide, a guideline there as to, to how, how that much switching is going to happen. But, uh, yeah, I, I think that's the main message. The soybean stocks figure global number actually went up a little bit because of the Chinese cuts. Mm -hmm. All right. What, what do you think about new crop? Is there anything um, takeaway from today's reports that gives us an indication of what we should be doing with our new crop marketing plan? As far as a takeaway from today's report, uh, I really don't have a lot, uh, beyond, to be honest with you, but really take a deep dive into what your numbers for your specific operation are because we pretty well know what our fertilizer costs are going to be at this point in time unless you're holding back. But I do know a lot of anhydrous and a lot of fertilizer has been applied this fall where it could be applied for corn acres for this upcoming 2023 season. There were even instances of you know shutting down the, the corn combine so we could get anhydrous put on like in western Iowa, central Iowa because they, they knew they could get the product then the product wasn't going to be in question as far as next spring. So a lot of fertilizer has been applied for the corn in the central United States in the Corn Belt. Again, we're visiting with Kyle Bumstead from Allendale, Alan Brugler from Brugler Marketing and Management. Um, and so we've kind of covered today's reports, right, from USDA. 
we want this to be interactive with you guys as well. So if you have a question, please raise your hand. We'll get these guys to respond to some of these questions as well. I'll kick it off with a discussion beyond today's reports. Let's talk about the export situation. Uh, you mentioned it a couple of times, and it's again been highlighted because of the strong basis. We got these mouths to feed here in the US. How important is are the exports, considering where we are right now, what's kind of the status? Are, are, are you worried about where we sit with exports right now? Kyle, let's start with you on that one. Somewhat, I'm somewhat worried about our export picture, but longer term, we've seen recently here, our dollar has been breaking a little bit. And if we can get this dollar to continue to break, I mean, obviously the dollar should go down. We have record inflation. Well, that should help keep some export business coming our way, but we are still, uh, we're still not the cheapest in the world for corner beans right now. So that is a problem for us. Alan, what do you think about the situation? Yeah. The Soybean-wise, very front-end loaded, but we'll probably have 80% of our exports for the year in the first six months because Brazil's got that record crop coming on. They've just started harvesting, just the 1% or 2% done so far. But they're talking 800 to a billion bushels more than a year ago. That's a huge change. And uh, it, it, uh, we're going to see our exports for the second half drop off considerably because of that. Uh, even if the dollar's down, it's not going to fix that problem. Uh, I think on the corn side, we, we're, we will see a big improvement in corn export sales second and third quarter. We'll see 700, 800 million exports for the third quarter, which is a lot better than the 280 we had this quarter. But uh, again, our math says you still don't quite make the USDA number for the year, the one that came out with today. So the market's job is we can have a rally because of today's surprises, but we need to keep uh, prices competitive with Brazil, with Russia, Ukraine, other sources of, of supply. I've, I've heard it said that, uh, especially for corn, that in a month or two or something like that, our U.S. corn becomes more competitive. Is that still the situation? Could, can we you know, have some hope, some genuine hope, looking forward in the next few months that that corn export number might pick up? Yeah, again, I think uh, the Brazilian uh, second crop, what used to be called the Safrina crop, was record large last year. They're just about out of that corn, okay? The, the FOB prices have come, come down. They're starting to, uh, uh, on the beans, they've come down. On the corn, they're not because they're running out. So that opens up the door for U.S. exports. Uh, and uh, again, we'll see a nice response, I think, starting here in, in the next couple of weeks in terms of corn sales going up. thing I'd caution producers on, they have to go up, okay? It's not going to be news if they go up because they have to go up, okay? It'll be helpful, but it's not going to be a driver. Okay, we get two, a couple of two million bush ton sales. That's not necessarily going to, to jack prices 50 cents. It needs to happen to make the WASDI numbers that we already have work. Kyle, what do we know about what's going on in China? Because they always seem to be a buyer. They are a market mover because of the volume that they have to import. What do we know about what's going on in China? Well, we do know that they are building their hog herd back up, so they've got a meal demand. They've also got corn demand, too, because they're building that hog herd back up. So, uh, you know, maybe if they can get their country open back up as far as the restrictions and whatnot, that could help increase some demand, get some more people out there. And as far as, uh, you know, ethanol usage over there, there's always been talk of them amping up their ethanol production and biofuel production as well, too. So that, uh, that could help us as well, too. All right. Uh, there's a question of the gentleman in the green coat there. What, what question do you have? Well, I know it's 
Now, the gentleman's question had to do with uh, milo or sorghum or uh, some of the specialty crops, maybe white corn and, and things like that. Uh, maybe not a line item that we look at every day, but does what's going on in the market, does it impact some of those crops? Well, of course, milo and sorghum are, are tied to corn pretty closely on the, from a basis standpoint, pricing standpoint. But what we know is we're extremely tight on sorghum, okay? The, the S&Ds this morning showed us basically almost running out of sorghum, uh, and that's, that's supportive. We need, we need more production, but we're, we're uh, to his point, we may not get that many more acres because everybody's planting corn and beans and even the winter wheat acreage was up. Uh, one thing that's kind of lacking, trying to tie the themes together here, sorghum exports to China were pretty good mostly for, for baiju, which is alcohol production. They've gone to zero in the last few months, okay? The Chinese just aren't buying our U.S. sorghum. So, uh, you know, we need, to, we, we need the Chinese to get over COVID and get back to drinking is what we need. <laughs> Good plan. Uh, you mentioned wheat too, and we haven't talked about wheat because I think that becomes an equation, especially in the feed wheat, Western Corn Belt, you know, we've got a, a high corn basis. Is there something, any messages that are being put out by the market in terms of winter wheat right now? Uh, USDA did raise their projected uh, feed use of wheat by 30 billion bushels today. They went from 50 to 80 million for the year, basically recognizing that in some of the southern plains that, you know, the corn's just not available or you don't want to pay $2 over for it. And even though wheat is on the board is higher than corn, that some of it was being fed. Mm -hmm. Any any stories on wheat that you're watching, Kyle? Uh, yes, as a matter of fact, when you look at the uh, acreage number here today, it looks like there's a few more acres of wheat planted this year. I believe yeah. was it was that is that correct, Alan? Winter and, wheat, 36 million and change. 36 million and change on the winter wheat. So we also need to keep an eye on that drought map out there in the Western Plains too. That's a big one for us because talking to producers down there, and it's very tough this time of year to listen to guys on the other side of the phone. My wheat crop is terrible. It's not going to make anything. Then when you call them back in uh, late June, early July, this is a record crop. I don't know where it came from. I don't know where it came from. I mean, they, they raise wheat in the high plains for a reason because it can grow there. So uh, looking though, we do need to keep our eyes. That Kansas City market has got some fundamentally bullish drivers underneath it because of the protein. We did see a big protein pull from uh, the Southern Plains to the Northern Plains here this past summer when they didn't have the spring wheat crop up there. But also we need to keep our eyes on the Eastern Belt too as well for that uh, soft red winter wheat. That uh, The spreads there have been leaning more bearish, but the Kansas City wheat spreads are more bullish out here on the Plains. So I think it's gonna be more of a protein play moving forward here once we get into harvest season. Yeah, that was gonna be kind of my follow-up is, you know, we've got winter wheat in the ground, right? You know, mm -hmm. uh, and I heard somebody say one time, we kill the winter wheat crop about seven times a year, which probably isn't far from the truth. But do any of those signals that you talked about, does that influence spring wheat, durum, some of those other spring planted small grains, do you think? Any thoughts on that? I think it can influence it because, you know, the spring wheat, they plant that in the spring, so they've kind of got an idea of what they have for moisture up there, obviously. When you're planting winter wheat, you stick it in the ground, hope it grows. Well, we might get some moisture, and if we do, we do, and if we don't, we've got insurance. And I hear a lot of guys talking about planting for insurance, which probably not the best business practice, but uh, it gets done anyway. One, one little angle there is we did increase the SRW to 7.9 million. That's going to increase the base for double crop beans next summer. Mm -hmm. Okay, we have fewer double crop beans planted this year than we would have expected given the total bean acreage. 
and if you root around, it basically boils down to having less weed acreage to drill them into. Okay. Uh, we're going to have more SRW, in, and SRW tends to have the moisture to support the double crop. So I think we're probably going to get some extra double crop beans out of this extra uh, SRW planting. Good comments so far. Are there any other questions from the crowd? Yes, sir. So the question, we kind of hit on this before, but the idea of renewable diesel, and there's, there's a lot of infrastructure that is being talked about, and a lot of plants out there that are upgrading, or new plants, shoot, I think we have three in this state that uh, they're working on, but longer term, when those come online, and the first few years after they come online, what, what, that, what could that do for uh, grain movement in this area? Yeah, most of the plants are in the western corn belt or the western half of the, of the soybean growing area, okay? And that's because that's where the cheap basis is. That's where your cheapest beans are, okay? So you've got expansion north and south, but most of them are in that part of the country. So it is going to tend to firm up your bases. Uh, the, the main theme I've been building on here is you got, uh, you're going to keep a lot more of the production domestic. It's not going to hit the rail to go to the west coast as readily. It's not going to hit the Gulf as readily because those processors always have a freight advantage over the export market. All right. So over time, you're going to see more uh, a, a shift of more domestic and less export for beans, uh, assuming these plants all get operational and don't go out of business like happened to some of the ethanol plants. Okay. In fact, I've argued that over time, what you'll see is you'll actually lose exports to Brazil for whole beans. We'll just, we'll just ship out less. Where it gets really interesting is if you have a year where there's a shortage, all right? We've ramped up our domestic use in Brazil's or handling the exports. What if either one of us has a crop shortfall? Now you've got a bidding war, right? Uh, so by having this industrial use, this uh, mouths that have to be fed every day, I think it, it, it firms your basis, but it also gives you potential every once in a while for a really big spike. Now. Uh, one more thought. Yep. Uh, it will, uh, corn versus beans, you will see some increase in acreage, but again, if you're substituting exports for domestic, you, you, beans don't have to buy an extra 10 million acres like corn did when we ramped up the ethanol. What do you think about, because uh, this is a bean oil driven type of a boom potentially, right? We're doing this for renewable diesel. Yeah. But the other half of that, the other half of that comes out of that plant is the soybean meal. Uh, is, that's gotta be a good thing for, uh, if you're into livestock development and things like that, right Kyle? Yeah, it, it would be a good thing for livestock. But uh, as far as the biofuel end of things, I think we need to keep a close eye on the economy, the world economy as well too. You know, make sure people are still traveling in order to use it. You know, we need to keep burning the fuel. Uh, but as far as the meal and uh, the DDG output, that would be really good for these local areas immediately here. We would be putting less on rail, probably, you know, maybe cheapening things up here locally for the livestock growers. Good question. The question uh, from the gentleman in the front row uh, relates to the announcement from Mexico that they are going to stop imports of GMO grain. Um, I think they targeted 2024 for that. Um, a lot of ag organizations have engaged with the administration on that. W what's your take on that? Uh, we'll start with you, Kyle. What do you, what do you make of that conversation? 
Well, I guess what I make of it is it's all politics right now. Um, and if we keep kicking it down the road, hopefully it keeps getting kicked down the road and then it just kind of becomes brushed under the table. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. Depends on what the administration does. But I think it would affect us here, uh, in, especially in the central United States, because a lot of our corn goes straight to Mexico from this area. And that's a big, big player for us. I always love to see when Mexico is at the top of our export list, whether it's corn, soybeans, or pork, or beef, whatever it is, because they are right next door and they can get it to us. So we can get it to them so fast. So that is going to be something that we do need to keep our eyes on here and keep keep working on it here locally and with these organizations to see what they're actually mean by that and what 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 are their what are their parameters as far as GMO goes. Well, I was going to ask, does this include DDGs? So if you take a GMO grain and run it through an ethanol plant, uh, DDGs go a lot of DDGs go to Mexico too. Does that include that, or don't don't we know yet? I haven't seen anything on yeah. DDGs. I'm not sure. DDGs. Yeah, I'm not sure about the DDGs, but uh, it is a violation of the USMECA or the NAFTA 2.0 for them to have to try and put that kind of restriction in, and we, we're making that point to them that we regard it as a as a, a violation to put that restriction. I, I think a lot of it has to do with the negotiating leverage. That, you know, hey, we're threatening not to take your corn, so. You know, your corn price ought to be cheaper right now when we're buying a lot of it, right? Yeah. Uh, we call that the Egyptian gamut. They always say they don't need wheat, and then they tender the next day. Doesn't, doesn't one of the big bean players play that game with us, too? There, there's net cancellations, oh, yeah, and all of a sudden soybeans go down 50 80 dollar, yeah. and then they come back? I, I think Obrador, who's a Mexican president, is also hoping that all of you will want to grow non-GMO corn. Okay, hey, we're here to buy it. You, you just go grow it, right? Uh, and they assume you can grow it for the same cost per bushel as the other stuff, which we know isn't the case. Uh, something else we haven't talked about yet is uh, uh, inflation and the dollar. And because we know that they have a big impact on grains and uh, how our grain is looked at in, in the world market. Uh, we did get a, a more data from the government, uh, consumer price index, 6.5% inflation, which is lower than the last few months, but it's still a big number compared to where we've been for the last 10 to 15 years. So, uh, Alan, let's start with you. Uh, impact of the value of the dollar and inflation in the commodity conversation. Okay, a couple things there. Uh, CPI did come down to 6.5%. The core inflation, which excludes food and energy and is a little more stable of an indicator, that was down up 5.7%. Up uh, one thing that struck me, though, is that the uh, good products, the core inflation for products went way down, but the core inflation for services, which is mostly labor, went up last month. Okay? And that's the one the Fed is really nervous about, frankly. Okay? Because when, when wages are the main driver of the inflation, it's all, you have to basically create unemployment to take the pressure off of wages. All right? So they, uh, to me, that, that drop in the inflation did not tell me the Fed's going to slow down on rate increases. It says they know where the real problem is here, which is on the employment side. Uh, now, going to the uh, ag impacts here. All right, the dollar has not reflected the high inflation because the Fed's been raising rates and it's been attractive to park all your dollars here. If you're European or Japanese, you go 0% or just barely above that in Japan, so, so sell yen and buy dollars, park them in treasuries. 
uh, now we're starting to see the dollar back off a little because the, the market thinks the Fed's going to succeed here, folks. The market thinks we're taking out some of the inflation premium in the treasuries, the 10 years, the 20 years, uh, thinking the Fed is eventually going to succeed. But in the short run, uh, a weaker dollar would be helpful here from export competitors. Okay. Somewhat related to that, too, maybe, Kyle, you can comment on, um, you know, the value of the dollar, uh, inflation, but interest rates, uh, you know, as we come back into loan renewal season, right, that is a conversation that's going to happen. Um, <laughs> I would argue that it hasn't affected land values yet, but w what are you watching when it comes to interest rates, the dollar, uh, and inflation and things like that? Short-term money is very expensive. Yeah, uh, and I've noticed, and I, I've ran quite a few scenarios here, going back to cattle feeders. Uh, I've seen interest rates uh, anywhere from six and a half to twelve and a half percent on short-term livestock, and your eyes are getting kind of big and saying, "Wow, that's a lot." But it depends on what kind of operation you're working with. If they're flush with capital and they don't have to borrow a lot of money, then the interest rates are a lot cheaper. Now, if you're borrowing forty to, or if you're borrowing fifty to seventy percent of what that animal is, it's getting up closer to eight and a half to ten percent. So that is something here that I don't think a lot of people have budgeted for the last ten years, as far as in their operations, it's really starting to balloon out there. So that really needs to be watched as far as the cost of, on everything. All right, good conversations. Any, any other questions? Otherwise, we're kind of at the half hour mark for our, uh, our recording here. And I know that uh, we want to get over and uh, have a, our favorite adult beverage here before we leave this afternoon too. But uh, there are a couple of things that I want to talk about with the guys before we wrap things up. And, and this is, uh, so we had a huge data dump today, right? Um, CPI, all of those USDA reports. What's out in front of us? Within our headlights or beyond our headlights? What is the next thing that you think the market is really going to pay attention to? Kyle? Well, I think the next mile marker on the road that we need to kind of take a look at here is what is the South American harvest going to be? Because we're going to start really watching that here towards the latter, uh, the last part of January, first part of February. We're going to get a few early harvest reports in South America. What are things doing? Once we get into March, then we're really going to be there. But what are we going to be looking at as far as acres moving forward? What's our weather picture look like? We've gotten some moisture here in the central plains. Some of our patterns may be changing a little bit. And we also need to keep an eye on the Fed and what they're doing with those interest rates. Alan, what about uh, the, the government activity? I, I think we were kind of brainstorming before. Uh, we have uh, the USDA Outlook Forum. That, that's something that's coming up in February. Of course, everybody will be watching prospective plantings and, and things like that when we kind of focus U.S. attention to the next crop year. Is there something between here and there that we should be watching for? Or, or do you think the Outlook Forum and prospective plantings are the next big thing? The Outlook Forum is significant because they will give us a preliminary, preliminary, preliminary estimate of next year's supply and demand. Okay, we don't even do a, a 23-24 S&D until the intentions report because we figure it's just garbage in, garbage out, right? You don't have good data to start with. But the, the Ag, uh, Chief Economist Office will put out a number there in, at the end of February of what they think that new crop S&D looks like, and we'll all use it because it's the only thing out there. Uh, the thing I'd remind folks is, uh, in our business, there's a thing called the Black Swan event. Okay, Black Swan is, some, is the, the kind of thing that happens that the market did not ever see possible coming. All right, remember we've got a land war going in, in Ukraine right now. That's not over. Uh, there's a lot, of un, uh, a lot of different ways that could go yet. Uh, I don't think China's going to invade Taiwan anytime soon, famous last words. Uh, 
I think they've got other ways they want to accomplish that mission. First thing is get their whole army to have COVID at one time so they're healthy. Uh, but uh, again, the, there's those kind of events that aren't directly in our ag pipeline that do impact our values. Yeah, Kyle, what do you think? Is there something, is there something that we haven't talked about yet um, that could impact things moving forward? Uh, you had a really, uh, Alan, you had a really good point that this Ukraine, Russia, Ukraine thing continues to go on. They seem to be managing. It seems like they're going to put out a crop, although it's going to be less than what it was even this year, but what else? What, is there something else we should key in on as we make our decisions for 23? Well, I think as far as looking forward to 23, we need to keep our eyes on the forward curve out in the back. What are November beans versus January beans? What are January beans versus March beans? Because you're getting some of a commercial view of what they're thinking is going to be as far as acreage. So if they start bidding up in the spreads out there, that could be telling us that the market's trying to buy some bean acres. Same way with corn. What is Dees corn versus March of 24 corn and March of 24 corn versus, say, July or something like that? What's the forward curve look like out there? Are they bidding up in the front months or are they putting that premium way out in the back? Remember, folks, bulls wear their horns on the front of the market. <laughs> Any other thoughts? Short crop, long tail. History says, we talked at the beginning of the show, we talked about those, those rallies that I saw back in 95, 96, and 08, and so forth. But every one of them has a long tail after it. The, we attract production, we kill demand, prices go back down towards the mean, markets are mean reverting is the term. Uh, and then we spend several years usually trying to, to get rid of the surplus that we just created. So high prices have a, have a negative impact over time. We're, we're going to be fighting gravity here. We can, we can still fly the rocket, but we've got to keep having fresh fuel. Okay? Right. Otherwise, we're going to come back down. All right. So that being said, this is how we're going to wrap up our podcast. You, you set it up very well. Uh, and I'll, I'll start with Kyle and we'll finish with Alan. But Kyle, give me a key. What can we be using at least right now in order to protect ourselves on some of these things that we talked about? What is a, a strategy or an idea that will accomplish, allow us to remain profitable and sustainable and do this in the years ahead? Well, I think you need to take, number one, a look at your balance sheet, cost production, have some good, tough conversations with your lending institution. I know it's a blanket statement everybody uses, but as cheap as, as, cheap as volatility is in the option market right now, it may not hurt to be you know, looking at some of those or looking at some forward contracts, maybe locking in some basis, and then when we get the, if we do get the uh, spring-summer rally, be looking at uh, locking in futures at that point in time or something along those lines. Maybe some HTAs, that's uh, you know, no really out-of-pocket cost there. You're just susceptible to a basis move and some of that stuff. Alan, what do you think? Uh, are there some manageable risk management strategies out there that we can be employing right now? Well, we like to buy puts on rallies. And, and, and basically, if you're looking new crop, put spreads or three-way spreads to, to, let, to reduce the amount of cash that you got to lay out for them. The thing I've been emphasizing with producers, though, is to, in a high inflation environment, you can get your margin squeezed. If you lock in your inputs and don't lock in your selling price and the selling price goes down, now you've lost margin. Conversely, uh, if you uh, go ahead and sell $6 corn and don't lock in your inputs and we get a surprise this spring to the upside on the inputs, you got squeezed again. So you've got to kind of manage your, uh, your cost exposure versus your, your selling prices here. All right, very good. Any final questions as we wrap up? Yep. Okay. okay, so as we sit now, what percentage do you like to be sold on old crop? Should we be, have a percentage done for 23 crop? 
I'll tell you where we're at officially. We're 55 to 60% sold on old crop and 15% on new crop. Uh, beans, I'm just a 5% further on the corn, but on the beans, I'm doing a straight scale up on new crop right now. 5% of the crop every 50 cents higher. Do the math. If I get to if I get to finish that string, it'll be an eighteen dollar or nineteen dollar average. Oh my goodness! I won't get it, but it's fun to think about. What about you? Um, uh, where are you? Where do you sit on old crop and, and new crop? Seventy thirty. Seventy percent of the old crop's gone, price or has a floor underneath it, and thirty percent of new crop. Mainly because we were locking in input prices and some stuff like that, so we had to get something covered out there so we could go back and say, hey, we've we've got something locked in here. All right, very good. Mix of both, gentlemen. Tell us how can we uh, get a hold of you. If folks would like to follow up, uh, if they've heard some intriguing things, if they'd like to follow along with what you guys do, Kyle, how do we, uh, how do, we do that? Well, first of all, you can just go up there west of Erickson and wave when you drive by the office, <laughs> or you can uh, call me at 308-708-7340, or you can hear me on KRVN every day at 1108. How about Alan? How about you? Okay. We do have a website, www.bruglermarketing.com. That's B-R-U-G-L-E-R, marketing, all one word, .com. You can call our office, too, 402-697-3623. If you want to uh, track me a little bit, I'm on Twitter yet. Uh, me, me and Elon Musk are good buddies, you know. Uh, that's at Brugler, M-K-T-G. All right, very good. Kyle Bumstead from Erickson, Nebraska, Allendale Incorporated, Alan Brugler from Brugler Marketing and Management, Elkhorn, Nebraska, our guests on today's podcast taping. Everybody, would you please give these two gentlemen a big round of applause for taking the time of being here today? That'll do it for this episode of Grain IQ. Thanks for joining us. I'm Chad Moyer. Grain IQ is a production of the Nebraska Rural Radio Association with support from the Nebraska Soybean Board. It is brought to you in part by Nebraska Soybean Farmers and their checkoff. Grain IQ is hosted by Chad Moyer and produced by Rebel Seclocha. It is written and edited by Alex Makavica. Our project manager is Bryce Duskid. You can listen to Grain IQ on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or online at ruralradionetwork.com.